choir ever, and we will get a chance to hear them in two weeks, I believe. I think it's their debut performance, and I hear rumors and behind-the-scenes talking about how much the kids are loving this. So please keep praying for them. Pray for Amanda and her helper, Amber, as they lead the kids. What an incredible, incredible church to have all these young people learning the Bible. Yeah, I see that. Um, learning music, learning to love Jesus Christ. And moms and dads and older people, please pray for the kids. Uh, think ahead 10, 15 years to what the world may be like if our Lord tarries. And we have an incredible responsibility to steward our children, to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, to, to work on their hearts, not just their external performance and, and compliance, but to really touch their hearts, to soften them for Jesus Christ, to make them willing and Pray that our church will be raising up the next generation or two of godly men and women. Pray for moms and dads who are in the midst of it. And pray for our pastor as he leads a, uh, a class next door in the cottage for moms and dads of shepherding a child's heart. And you're welcome to join that if you are in that age group. And I'll let you determine what that means. Another class going on, uh, Henry Christoph is going through uh, a chapter in MacArthur's, MacArthur's uh, Bible Doctrine book, and he's, in the, he's just covering a light chapter right now, uh, soteriology. He covered a very light subject, propitiation, expiation, and all these Dutch theologians that I can't pronounce their names, but he knows his stuff, and you will learn from him. A few more items, Fall Fellowship, out at Reformation Farm. Is that the correct name now? Yes. Okay. 20 days. Please RSVP so Autumn knows how many cookies to bake for us. Okay. If you haven't come last year, it's worth it. If, if you're new to us, come out. It, it's a wonderful time to see people outside of their church clothes, having fun, good fellowship, hay rides, and just, what more can I say? It's a great time. Ladies, ladies Bible study. I have some books for the next study. Please don't be afraid to get one from me. That's a joke, Mary. Why are you afraid? Um, I have them in the back, and that's going to start next week. Our annual business meeting is coming up at the 30th, directly after the fellowship meal. And I'll give you a, a little preview of it. We will have a formal budget, but in general, the budget's going to be raised 10% across the board, and I'm going to round the figures to make sense. Uh, cost of living raised for our senior pastor, 3%. Executive pastor, zero compensation. Non-members are welcome to come. You just can't vote. And the last thing is I'm passing around a card that Julia made for Aragorn Thacker's parents. This is the first anniversary of her going home to glory. So please sign it. Gordon, I want you to take it home. So 
That's all the announcements I have for today. Well, good morning. Our call to worship is found in Mark chapter 1, and I'll begin reading in verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they saw their, they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they, were, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they took him up about her, told him about her. And he came and, told, and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and s said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. gospel reading this morning. Note here that the demons certainly knew that Jesus is the Holy One of God. We're reading through our gospel reading just to get you to think more about the incarnation of Jesus Christ coming, descending from heaven to live among us. Note there in verse 34, uh, he healed many who were sick. This is a display of his grace. Any healing that occurs at all comes through the hand of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He tells them not to speak, that is the demons, of him, because they knew him. Because Christ had a purpose, and that was to die for the sins of his people. We'll talk more about that in just a bit. But this morning what we want you to do is to prepare to indeed remember that. Remember his life 
as we're reading through it, is death, burial, resurrection, and ascension on high. Later on in today's sermon, we'll discuss further his mediatorial work as high priest right now. I want to give you a moment to prepare your heart. Jesus gave us this ceremony, we call it communion with Christ, for us to think on these things and to remember Christ. So I'm going to give you a moment to prepare your heart to remember Christ. We'll sing a hymn. I'll say something about this hymn in just a moment. But we want to prepare your heart so that you can receive these elements, these remembrance of him in a worthy manner. If you're not a member of the church, you can still participate as long as you're in Christ and obedient to him. And if you've confessed your sin, recognizing he's faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So I'll give you a moment to do that now. You won't do it before me because I'm not your mediator. You will do so with Christ and Christ alone. He indeed is your great high priest. So let's take a moment privately where you're at to pray and prepare your heart to receive communion and to worship Christ today. And then I'll pray for us corporately. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray now. Holy One of God, we come to you now pleading your mercy, praising your grace. You are good and glorious and kind God who is always faithful and always true. We repent of our unfaithfulness. We, we repent of our wickedness. We rejoice that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All of us who will plead for your mercy, you will grant it to us. And so, with great joy, we thank you for that. But it is costly. And Father, we praise you for sending the Son to live among us, to bear our guilt to atone for our sin, to appease your wrath so that we can stand even now and call on your name and to help forevermore. I pray, Father, that we would not allow these things to be forgotten in our day-to-day -day busyness and occupation of life, that we would take time to truly remember and truly reflect Send the Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts to, to see the significance of this symbolism in Christ. I pray that our hearts then would be lifted up in great joy and praise in your presence with great delight. And may you receive our praise as a great, sweet-smelling fragrance and joy 
as a father delights in a son. I pray that you bless us this day. May your name be exalted in all we do. In Christ's name, amen. We're going to begin our hymn in 231 in your hymn book. And I'd like for you just to remain seated during the hymn. I want you to think about these words. This is, if you look at the bottom, 231, it says it's, it's a, the words were essentially translated from a medieval poem. There are some people who attribute this to Bernard of Clairvaux. We're not sure. That was, you know, somewhere in the uh, 12th century. In any case, we're not certain. But what we are certain about, that this has been a hymn with the church for a long time, and the focus is a little different. It's focusing on the passion, the suffering of Jesus Christ. Our beloved Savior, who we read about, would take on this grief, take on this shame, take on this weight, take on this penalty, none of which he certainly merited or deserved. It is your weight. It is your penalty. It is your suffering which he bore. And so this is kind of a somber song to think about the passion of Christ. It, it ends here with a recognition of love. Not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. So think through these words as Fleck comes to lead us, O sacred head, now wounded. Let's sing together number 231.
We're given two elements to remember the life and death of Jesus Christ, the bread and the fruit of the vine. Blake, would you bless these elements as we prepare to receive them in remembrance of Christ? Dearly Father, Lord, we come to you in remembrance of your sacrifice, Lord. Uh, as we've just sung, Lord, you were despised and rejected by men, mm -hmm. a man of sorrow and familiar with suffering, Lord. And you took our infirmities and carried our sorrows, uh, stricken and smitten and afflicted, Lord. And um, you were pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon you. Yes. By your wounds we are healed, Thank Lord. Thank you, Lord. Come uh, in victory today, Lord, yes. to remember uh, your sacrifice uh, of, the, uh, of your blood and your body. And we just uh, ask that you would uh, uh, find a sweet savor, Lord, as we glorify you during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Two elements, I would like you to receive both of them. So if you'll come forward, we'll start with this side, stand, come forward, take both elements, then return to your seat, the middle, and then this aisle here. Uh, these will be available for you. Then wait, and we'll receive them together. Let's go ahead.
indeed every hour we do need Christ, we may not think about it, but we do. We need the life of Christ, this perfect life symbolized by the substance of this bread. Receive this in remembrance of him. The perfect merit we needed to be before God symbolized certainly in this bread of the substance of the life and perfection of Jesus Christ. But we actually did sin. He actually did atone for our sin. It is finished. Receive this in remembrance of him. Our next hymn is one of my favorite. It's a little more joyful than our somber one, so we'll stand for it and sing and reminisce then about the fountain filled with blood that flows from Emmanuel's veins. William Cooper struggled a lot with depression in his life. And one of the ways he was able to overcome it was to write hymns like this and think about this truth that is in Christ Jesus. And I hope we can have a certain joy, too, thinking about that fountain truly filled with blood. Let's stand together as Blake leads us. Is it 224? 224, 224 in your hymn book. There is a fountain filled with blood.
turn to number 247. 247. And we'll sing, In the cross of Christ I glory. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. 247. Psalm 135. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. He it is who makes the cloud rise at the ends of the earth, who makes the lightnings for the rain, and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who is in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all the ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the works of human hands. 
They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, he who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord of glory, perfect and righteous one, we bless your holy name. For you are the only one worthy of all glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist. We come before you now in humble adoration and thanksgiving. You are greater than we can comprehend, and yet you turn your eyes to look upon and care for us. Greater still, you sent your Son to take on flesh and dwell among us, sharing in our frail humanity, even to the point of death, so that you might redeem us for your glory, even while we were yet your enemies. How marvelous you are, and how great is your mercy. As we meet together before you this morning, in safety and comfort, we lift up to you those who cannot do the same. Our brothers and sisters around the world who are struggling with issues of safety, oppression, disaster, and violence. Specifically, we lift up those who are impacted by Hurricane Ian and express, experience great loss. Those who are suddenly without homes, businesses, transportation, power, who may have lost loved ones. Father, we ask that you would surround them with your surpassing love and comfort. That you would lift their eyes to be fixed on you, our great provider. And for those who do not know your love at now, who are lost in the darkness of this world, we ask that you would draw them to yourself through this trial, that you would use your church to be a light and a witness for you, to love sacrificially, to speak boldly, to be hands and feet of Christ, and help us here to do the same, to follow the Spirit and how it leads us, and to not pass by opportunities to share your love and the gospel when you bring them into our daily lives. Lord God, renew our minds so that we might become more like your Son, and give us a thirst for your word so that we might run to it at all times. Bless Pastor Wayne as he leads us through this message that you have uh, made for us this morning. Prepare our hearts so that we might hear your truth and know you more. Help us to come away with a greater understanding of your son and the marvelous help that he is to us who are sealed in him. We praise you for the great blessing that Christ knows our trials because he has suffered them alongside us. And he will strengthen us when we are faced with temptations and tribulations. Thank you that you are not an idol of silver or gold or created by the hands of men, but you are alive and you are sovereign and you reign in the heavens. We also thank you for this time of worship through the offering that you have given us this opportunity to remember how abundantly you have blessed us, that we have been invited to bless others with your abundance, and that we can dwell on your faithful care and provision not relying on our own strength, but on your much greater ability to provide everything that we, your children, need. We ask you to bless it, the message this morning, our fellowship today, and the rest of the coming week. We thank you for all of these things in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.
Let's take our hymn books once more and stand and turn to number six, and we'll sing How Great Thou Art. We'll sing uh, the first three verses with our accompaniment, and then in verse four, we'll sing a cappella. So number six, How Great Thou Art. Verse four, we love you all, but we'll sing a cappella on verse four.
Amen. God bless you, everyone, and our great sovereign God, because indeed he is a great God. We'll find out more about him from his word in Hebrews chapter 2. Today we finish this section, this first section really, in Hebrews before we move on to chapter 3. I have one more thing to say about Jesus, who's mentioned here as high priest, our mediator. Jesus mediates on behalf of the elect, who certainly suffer when tempted, but triumph through his help. And I think you'll see that in this text before us, and most notably verses 17 and 18 of chapter 2. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now last week I introduce this by saying that this is the first time Jesus is called high priest in the book of Hebrews. It is something that is emphasized throughout the course of the book, and I encourage you to read it. And so we will come back to this time and time again, Jesus functioning in what I would call his mediatorial work on the behalf of his people. This is really the only explicit statement concerning Jesus as our high priest. There are other places in Scripture, certainly, that talk about it, but not directly as it does here in the book of Hebrews. Ultimately, the book of Hebrews focuses on the superiority or the supremacy of Jesus Christ. But that is connected to the idea, then, of why that is so important for us to know. I mean, it is the truth. It is something for us to uh, respect and recognize, but it has a very practical application because this Supreme One, this God incarnate, actually is a high priest or a mediator, and that's what he's going to emphasize here initially as the as chapter 2 closes. It is wrapped up within the theme of the entire book. If you remember, I've mentioned it before, and I'll mention it again, I'm sure, from chapter 8 and verse 1, kind of a thematic statement wrapping all that together, where the preacher of Hebrews says, the point that we're saying is this. Well, he tells us what the point is, that we have such a high priest, one who is then seated, that is sovereign, at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. The supreme one, the excellent one, Jesus Christ, who then functions as a high priest between God and man. We need a mediator because of our estrangement from God due to our sin. This mediator, it makes sense then, would have to have a foot 
in both worlds, heaven and earth, if you will, to truly bring together and reconcile man to God. No wonder the scripture would say in 1 Timothy 2, 5, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, who? The man Christ Jesus, God incarnate, functioning in this office as Messiah, as a mediator. I said earlier, I, I don't act really as a mediator, but a messenger. Our mediator is Christ. I call you then to look to Christ, the only one who can reconcile you to God. I can point him out. I can say, there he is. But don't come to me to confess your sin, to have them atoned for. You will need to go to Christ. He is the only mediator between God and man. Our reconciliation then is, is based on this fact that God's righteous wrath has been not swept away, not ignored or forgotten, but actually paid for, appeased, or the word that's used in our text, propitiated. Jesus, our high priest, actually makes that real propitiation for sin. All that was symbolized in the Old Testament pointed to the substance of this, of what Christ actually does. He actually appeases the wrath that is otherwise due. The wages of sin is death. He does so by legally taking on our guilt, though he had no guilt. It was what we would say imputed or given to him. As our federal head, he takes on the judgment of all that are in Christ. Verse 17, as I pointed out, begins with a therefore, so it kind of really summarizes all that has been said before in his first two chapters. So let's just read that text one more time and focus on the content of it this morning. Verse 17 of chapter 2, therefore. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let us pray. Father, indeed, I pray the significance this truth would not pass lightly in our minds, but we would be reminded of it and see the significance of this great truth and go to the well of this fountain of grace to drink freely from it. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week I detailed this office of the priest and our need for a mediator. We went into some detail on propitiation and why it was necessary. And for those attending Henry's class this morning, providentially, God has um, 
brought that subject was the very thing that we were going over today, this morning. Uh, next week, we'll actually further elaborate on the particular application of that to God's people. And he'll discuss that in greater depth, and you can bring some questions to that class. If you're not part of it, I encourage you to, to do so next week. Jesus was made like his brothers, the text says, so that he could function in this capacity. That is, he took on human flesh to function as a mediator. This is an incredible argument that the preacher of Hebrews makes. Because what he's addressing is the idea, you can see it behind it, is that would this somehow lessen God to take on temporal human flesh, if you will? Human flesh that is subject to mortality. After all, angels don't die. So this argument is interwoven in the first two chapters that Jesus is indeed greater than angels. He is greater and wondrous in many ways, and this last one, this one that is saved for last, is the, the, the final pulpit-pounding thump. That is, that Jesus is our great high priest. The incarnation is pointing to that. This reconciliation between God and man is mediated only in one. It is in Jesus Christ. But today I want to expand that a little bit to really look more on the practical side of and the application of this concept of Jesus as mediator, of this office that is actually ongoing right now. It hasn't ended. It, it isn't one-time thing. This mediation continues. He is a merciful and faithful High priest. And the question that I'd have, and just looking at it quickly, okay, to, to, to whom? And to, to what respect? I mean, yes, this is true of who Jesus is, but who does he mediate for is the question. And the answer I've given, just in shorthand, because it's biblical in the way it's phrased, although some folks really have a hard time hearing this term, and that is the elect, or the chosen, or the people of God. I'm not suggesting by any means that Jesus as high priest and mediator has no general benefit to humanity. It does. In fact, the reason we can still continue on is because of Christ. We call this his, his common grace, if you will. This work of redemption in time will continue until the last is redeemed. And then he will come. But the real question we're looking for is not, is there some sort of benefit to all of mankind? Yes. But what specific benefit is this for? And how does this work get um, accomplished? And who does he mediate for? He does so for the elect. That, that's who he is high priest of, or his people. I'm going to 
find, find it in Ephesians chapter 1. If you want to hold your finger here, we'll be back. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul, really in shorthand in the whole first chapter, kind of summarizes this concept of salvation. But I'll just highlight verses 4 and 7 in Ephesians 1. Talking about his purposes in redemption, verse 4, Christ chose us in him, God chose us in him, in Christ, note here, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy, blameless before him, and in love. They're all three characteristics of the state of those that are said to be chosen, and you could use the term elect or God's people there to understand that. When did God purpose in his mind for this to occur? From the very beginning. When was it actually accomplished in time? On the cross. It was finished. It was atoned for. But all of this had been purposed before the world began. That those that he had chosen would be holy. That is, made perfectly right, set apart before him. Blameless. And how would they have no blame? Because their sins would be, and we'll get to this in Hebrews, but know to have the connection here, the sins would be atoned for. God's righteous wrath due against unholy people, it would be propitiated, and this is terminology used of a priest, and and create a, a, a different and unique situation in which here is a specific love, a love in the beloved. Not, not general love in that sense, but specifically to those, those that he purposed to choose. In fact, this was planned out, verse 5 expands on that. He predestined. That's what predestined means. It means to predetermine ahead of time. What did he predetermine for those that he, were going, that he is going to make holy, blameless, and before him one in the beloved? He then expands that to say that he planned to adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. To the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace. Which he has blessed us in the beloved. And your translation has it capitalized as well it should. The beloved is Jesus Christ. And, and that's what would make anyone lovely before the father. Because they are one with the son. I'm not a lovely person. I can pretend like it. I can socially get along. And some people actually like me. But I'm not really all that lovable. No amens for my wife. Or children. <laughs> Occasionally I am, but not most of the time. But Jesus is lovely all the time. What a glorious truth to know this. That this was God's plan. For you to be beloved in Christ. As the Father loves the Son. He would love you to that degree. Not in a general sense, but in a specific sense. It's unimaginable when you really stop to think about it. And I recognize in how John, the apostle, 
a wise man who had been through a lot of rough times in his own life would remark that he was the disciple who Jesus loved. Can't fathom it. You can't either. But the response is then praise. Some bewilderment, no doubt, but praise. Praise of what? Of his gift. That's his glorious grace that he has granted to us. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. His grace is greater than all your sin. Matchless, marvelous, wonderful grace. This is what we're talking about. This payment, this propitiation in verse 17 in Hebrews. This is not a general idea and concept, a theological conundrum, if you will. It it, it has a a real effect. Back to Hebrews chapter 2, notice verse 17. This high priest makes this appeasing sacrifice, and the text is clear of who it is for. That was my question. It is for, note here, verse 17, the sins of the people. God's righteous wrath, as I've mentioned, is being revealed even now from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. And what's the biggest sin of mankind? Who suppress God's righteousness and truth, it's, it's done so because they have a failure to honor him as God, or we would say glorify God, essentially the same. This heart of rebellion of mankind against God is to fail to honor him as God. Romans one twenty one. God has revealed himself in the created order, He's revealed himself in the conscience of man. He's revealed himself in Christ, who is in his holy word. There is no excuse to not honor then God as God. In his wrath then, which is righteously expressed, actually that is in a way, in myriad ways, a gracious suppression of evil, of that which does not honor God. But mankind is indicted for Romans one twenty one, knowing God and not honoring him as God or giving thanks to him. What does it mean to honor him? To be thankful. But they became instead by suppressing that truth became futile in their thinking and then their foolish hearts were darkened. The rebellious heart will sing the song of pride with Satan and find themselves merrily down the path of destruction and ruin. We we talked in their parents' class about honoring your parents because they're representatives of God. It'll lead you to long life, that is, a flourishing. 
reject that, it's going to lead you to failure and doom and destruction. And you see that in the lives of people who rebel against all sorts of authority. <laughs> this propitiation then is, is made for people that are not glorifying God as God, but it's not made generally for everyone in that sense. Otherwise, no one would face certain judgment, wrath. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. Judgment will come. Judgment will come either in Christ, who took on our sin, or in yourself. But that's the destiny of us all, in Christ or not in Christ. Now, there are many people who might argue with me about this propitiatory sacrifice that Christ has made and say, well, it's, it's made for all humanity in a hypothetical situation if they would just accept that. But that's not what the idea of a propitiation is. It's, it's an actual appeasement for sin, for actual sin, not for hypothetical sin. Think about it in a larger biblical context. Symbolically, in the Old Testament, this order of priests was set up with sacrifices and all of this ritual. It wasn't done for the Canaanites. Whoever was theirs. It wasn't done for the Egyptians. Whoever was theirs. Now, there's not a general propitiation being symbolized here. It is specific. Who was it for? For those who symbolize God's people. In our text, our high priest, Jesus, makes propitiation, it says, for his people. No wonder the angel says to heaven, from heaven concerning Mary, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus would describe himself as a shepherd. A shepherd for a specific people. He calls them a a flock, his sheep. John 10, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the goats. No, it's for his sheep. I know this can be hard to grasp, but look at the truth of what Scripture says. He'll say, go on to say in John chapter 10 and verse 14, he says, I'm the good shepherd. He says, I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. He's speaking of the Jews right there, that that's the fold. But I have others that are outside of this ethnically. I must bring them in also, that they will listen to my voice. So there's going to be one flock and one shepherd. 
Those that are in Christ, he's the shepherd. He knows his own, and his own know me. This is why we don't have to... We preach the gospel and beg and plead that you'd give your heart to Christ, but I can't make anyone a sheep in that sense. They come to realization of who they actually are. This is the dynamic work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, it uses the, the foolishness of preaching, just this proclamation of it. I would say it uses the foolishness of praying and persistency, and we do that. We don't run around trying to figure out, well, is this one a sheep or that one a goat? We can tell by their actions and their attitude and their affections, and really they can tell mostly of themselves. This is why you have to examine your own heart, because I can put on a show and pretend I'm something that I'm really not. It's ultimately what is going on in the heart. Is there something that actually convicts you of sin? Is there actually something that causes you to love Jesus Christ? Is there, is there something beyond external demonstration? It's a matter of the heart. And it is Christ's work who ultimately will speak. And whether you grow up in a Christian home or a non-Christian home, wherever you might be, you will hear his voice, and you will come. And the realization of that results in abounding praise and uh, thanksgiving to him. And, beloved, just if you haven't thought about this idea of his propitiation for you individually, if you're in Christ, think about it. And I would just add before I move on, too, listen, if, if you want to be in Christ, can I tell you, he's not going to send you away. <laughs> the, the desire that you, you want to, through the means of the proclamation of the truth, is an indication of it. This is the means he has chosen to use to call many sons and daughters glory. It, it isn't a matter of sitting figuring out, well, I wonder if I'm in or out. If you want in, you can come. That's it. Come to Christ. And when you do, then you realize it's all of His matchless glorious grace, and you'll never quit praising Him for it. And what a great joy it is. But Jesus specifically then identifies with those that are His own. And it is a unique relationship. It is one that is enduring and will last forever. Th this is why that you don't walk away from that. You can't. Because it's who you are. Back to Hebrews. Just look at how this is alluded to in, in a number of ways. I'll point out a few just from where we've been in the first and second chapter. This Jesus, the high priest, he is connected to the people. The people who are paralleled with verse 14 of chapter 1, notice this, heirs of salvation. 
that, that's the imagery of this is going to, this is something that has been planned out before, promised before, and in time will be actuated or inherited, an heir of salvation. That's who the high priest is propitiating for. Verse 10 of chapter 2, who is it? It's his sons, many sons. Verse 12, it's called the brethren. Verse 16, the seed of Abraham. We went through that. The, the seed of Abraham are those who are of faith. It is with them that Christ alone identifies himself with. Verse 11, he is all of one. It is he, Jesus, that sanctifies, verse 11, and then they who are sanctified. That is, he is the Holy One who makes those holy. He lays hold of, he helps, he snatches up the seed of Abraham, not the seed of Adam, verse 16. Scripture is clear to this nature of propitiation. Jesus does not die for a potential atonement, but he actually accomplishes his intended purpose. It is finished not potentially on the cross, but actually, he actually propitiates God's wrath on the behalf of his sons and daughters. These are great benefits. I'll finish with one text, just simply because of time. And if you want, you might want to look at it. It's from what we call Jesus's high priestly prayer, from John chapter seventeen. I love going through this section in John, and I hope you devotionally reflect on it from time to time, because these are the very words of Jesus Christ for you. We pray that all men will come to repent and believe. A universal call. Come to Christ. He won't cast you out. But once you come, beloved, you're going to find out something that is going to overwhelm you. And that is Jesus has been mediating on your behalf all along. Look at verse 9 of chapter 17. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, they are yours. This praying for is the idea of mediation. He, he's mediating behalf, and when he says the world, that's just humanity in general, what he's talking about. But who is Christ mediating on behalf of? those whom you have given me in his high priestly prayer to the Father, for they are yours. All of mine are yours and yours are mine. I'm glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. That, that oneness here is not primarily oneness among humanity, our, ourselves, which that's a good thing. It's 
the union we have with Christ that mediates on our behalf, that brings us in relationship with God. The only way is through Christ. And it is Christ who has been praying for you all the time. I pray all the time for salvation here for your souls. It's a daily routine for me particularly the children, but also adults as well, and those that just might wander in from time to time. I want you to know Christ. I want you to have your sins propitiated for. I want you to have great delight and flourishing forever and ever. But realize this. There's somebody else praying. And that's Jesus Christ who's praying for you all the time. I can't imagine why he would even bother praying for me. But that's what the text says. So that Christ would be glorified. That is, Christ would be magnified. So my response is great praise and thanksgiving to him. I don't care what other people think about. There's one I think about. That's Christ. He's my mediator. Christ does this to benefit and identifies with us even in this terrestrial life, if you will, which is filled with suffering and temptation. And that's back to our text in verse 18. The state of mankind, really, if you think about it, yeah, there's great times when your team wins or when you catch the big fish or get a big bonus, better job, whatever, good meal, but really, there's a lot of suffering going on. Jesus took on this limitation of human flesh in order to help us when we suffer. Notice the text in verse 18. It says, he himself suffered when tempted. And let me just address this briefly, too, because how many of you have these ideas about Jesus and his temptation that in order for it to be real, he had to be able to sin. Now, I understand why people make that statement, but I also reject it because it's heretical. I mean, Peter said something heretical, and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, <laughs> right? So someone, even redeemed, can say something wrong. Jesus can't sin because he's God. He, he never gave up the fact that he's God. God, as James would say, can't be tempted by evil. It, it tempted in the sense, tempted to be subject to it. He, he's aware of it but, but it, but, but it has no power in him. God, God will not sin. By definition, he can't. Jesus Christ is God. God cannot sin. These trials, then, that he's tempted with just demonstrates the fact that he is God because he never broke. Look at chapter 12 of Hebrews and 3 through 4. Thinking about Christ dealing with temptation 
suffering to that degree. Hebrews 12, 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary in, or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. Verse 4. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Jesus Christ did. That's his point. He went all the way to Calvary. Most of us, when we sin, we will give in at some point. So we never experience the intensity that Jesus Christ experienced. He experienced every single temptation up to the point of shedding blood is the imagery there. Up to death. He never quit. He never gave in. Whatever the maximum was, it was there. And he never broke. He never sinned. But he felt the weight of it in taking on human flesh. Don't think for one moment he doesn't understand what that's like. What he understands is far more than you've ever considered. And it is suffering when you're tempted. And it's described that way. The word suffering is paralleled with this idea of tempting. But since he triumphed over every temptation, in what way did he suffer? We sang about it and talked about it earlier, didn't we? Physical pain, no doubt. They scourged him, humiliated him, and crucified the very Lord of glory. Mental anguish in his human state as well. Luke records in 22 of his gospel, speaking of Jesus in his prayer and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat become, became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. I never prayed that hard, have you? Mental anguish, yes. To the point of blood, yes. Pain to the point of blood, yes. Emotional strain and suffering. He would cry out to those that are lost. Who the religious leaders had blinded in their religious traditions of men. And he'd weep and wail and cry out, Oh, Jerusalem! Oh, Jerusalem! The city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. They won't hear the truth. How often would I have gathered you, your children, together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you weren't willing. What an awful state to be trapped in lies. Deeply moved at the expression of sorrow by Martha and Mary in the death of Lazarus. A very simple verse in the Bible, 1135 of John, you remember? It just says this, Jesus wept. Then a little tear, this is great emotional strain. I hate death, do you? You ever weep at funerals? or afterwards, or you're just thinking about it. I remember a beloved one of mine died, and I just sit there and pounded the steering wheel and said, I hate sin. 
That's the consequences of it. We just don't think about it much. We pretty it up, and I understand, respectfully and all. It can bring you to great tears and weeping. And Jesus suffered that too. The loss. The consequences of sin. He was in, he suffered great poverty. He said, foxes have holes and birds have of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. But it wasn't just physical, mental anguish and emotional strain, but beyond that, in the suffering of this temptation, the denial of it is, is self-denial, if you will, and that in and of itself is a suffering. Because you're not giving in to the temptation that would otherwise promise and provide a certain degree of delight, temporal as it might be. But the denial of that would be included in that suffering. In fact, that's what Jesus has called us all to do, is to suffer in the sense of self-denial as well. Where I'm getting that, you might want to Look at it in Luke chapter 14. There's many places, but Luke 14, 25. I'll try to hurry and finish this up. Luke 14, 25. Great crowds come after Jesus. He's got them all ready to follow him now, and he's got their ear. And here's how you thin the crowd. If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, to go try putting that on a gospel track <laughs> and see how many smiles you get, that is a hard statement. And you know what it means. It means that Christ is the priority. Not your immediate family. Not even yourself. Deny self is what he's call, calling for and be my disciple. In fact, do it to the point of death. Whoever doesn't bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Whatever God has, and it may be great suffering, great temptation to give in. And you may have to suffer the consequences of, of not and standing up for righteousness. Like the three Hebrew children in Daniel who said, well, God could deliver us if he wanted to. But even if he does, we're not, we're not obeying and worshiping you and whatever thing you set up. We're worshiping God and, God and him only. Our culture would rather find acceptance with the devil's lies than to courageously stand for the truth. Our mediator, Jesus Christ, has done the same and suffered great temptation. Follow Christ and you will too. But I do want to end with this, and that's the good news. Back to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 18. Because these people, when they're suffered and tempted, that would be you if you're in Christ, I want you to note this phrase in verse 18. He is able to help. Can you circle that? He is able to help. 
those that are being tempted. You're going to have to remind yourself of that because it may feel like there's no help. You may feel like you're in a situation that you just can't get out. Well, you might be looking at the wrong mediator. Look to Christ. He can help. He's been through it, and he has the ability to help. It's not just sympathy, as we pointed to a number of times in chapter 4 and verse 15, of understanding. We, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And let me emphasize that too. Remember with the temptation part, yet without sin. He cannot because he's gone. But he can empathize, he can sympathize with us. We do have that mediator. He is the God of all comfort. He is the Father of all mercies. And in fact, for those that are in Christ who go through various afflictions, God will even use that experience as a means to comfort others. It is God's extension of comfort. This ministry of comfort, by the way, is made possible and only possible through one. That is the mediator, Jesus Christ. It's something that is granted by his mercy. Jesus will grant empathy that we need. He compassionately understands our frame. But he does more than just feel your pain. He does more than just experience your pain. The text says here about something about ability. In verse 18, he is able to help those that are being tempted. This Greek word here, and I want to get into that detail, but it's a word that really is a lot stronger than our customary use of help. When we think about help, Somebody stops and says, how can I help you? And maybe they provide a little help along the way. Th this help, though, from the aspect of the word itself, the King James renders it sucker. They get that idea from how you would treat a little infant child who needs help and you're a loving parent one little cry not a one of defiance <laughs> or I want a different toy or something else to eat you know when they're really hurt if a little child goes down here and falls down those steps I guarantee you there'll be a lot of people running down there to go help the child. This is just a, a natural human response, if you will. That, that's the picture of this help of a parent running to a child who cries out for help. We would all run for help. This assistance that he provides is an expression of 
what was described in the Old Testament as his loving kindness. Our merciful and faithful and great high priest is able to actually help in that time of need. Our memory verse and meditation verse this week is from 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has taken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful and will not let you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You want to endure it? You want to suffer? That is, not give in to it? This isn't a matter of finding help in any other source but this one, Jesus Christ, your mediator. He will help. Cry out to him. Call on him. And just as much as a parent would to a little child who injured themselves, and maybe even the whole community in large would go to help some precious soul that was stranded and needed help. How much more would God do it? And I'll just finish on this. Jesus would tell his apostles as he sent them out to not have fear don't really have fear in this world and where you're going and people want to kill you and destroy you he says and I'll just quote from Matthew 10 31 fear not therefore you are of more value than sparrows do you ever see any birds they're kind of cheap says not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father even the hairs on your head are numbered how precious and beloved are those that are in Christ of great value because of Christ let's go to our high priest and pray father we're thankful for sending your son who continually mediates on our behalf I pray for myself and all who are in Christ. As we engage in this life, experience suffering, and temptation, and need the strength to endure, I pray, Father, we will truly then look to Christ for our help, who is more than able that your name would be glorified in all we do. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, let me give you a minute or two to think on these things and respond. And listen, if you're outside of Jesus Christ, if you don't imagine yourself in the Beloved today, if you have sensed that, you may come to Christ even now and give him great praise and glory. Confess your sin. Call on his name. He will not cast you out.
for those that might be struggling in various experiences of your life, this is just a reminder of who our mediator is. And so take a moment to think on these things and go to Christ and Him alone. Father, grant us a realization of the truth and who you are, and may we find our rest in Christ and him alone. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'm going, Jerry's out of town, so I'm going to try to finish this up. And what hymn did you play? Let's see my options here. 424. Hmm. I must tell Jesus all of my trials. I cannot bear these burdens alone. In my distress, he kindly will help me. He ever loves and cares for his own. I think that's fitting, don't you? Let's sing this to Christ. Stand with us. 424. I must tell Jesus Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever, and God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you.